morning again, and thank you for being with us as we worship this Lord's Day. If you would turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel 14. And as you turn there, just a, a word, a reminder, I am very thankful for the opportunity we have to gather. I realize that many of you are weary, and you are tired. Uh, it would have been very easy uh, and excusable this morning to hit that snooze alarm, <laughs> to tell the kids uh, you can sleep in, and just to get more rest. It is no small thing that we have gotten out of that bed and gotten our families together and come to worship in the midst of our weariness and in the midst of our tiredness. And my prayer is that as we do that, as God's people have done that for generations, that God would truly bless us through the reading and the preaching of his word today. We're going to continue to walk through a portion of scripture where there is some weariness. Now, we ended last Lord's Day in 1 Samuel 13 with Saul losing God's favor, with Saul then encamped on one side of a valley with just about 600 men. And then on the other side of the valley were the enemies of God, the Philistines, with far more than 600. In fact, last week's passage we read they were there with 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. And to make matters worse and more exhausting, Saul and his 600 don't have swords and don't have spears because the Philistines somehow have gone in and taken all the blacksmiths from them. Uh, it is a hopeless situation. It is an exhausting situation. And yet, as we look last Lord's Day, we see that times like this of weariness and tiredness and failure and hopelessness are so often the backdrop for a great movement of God. And that is what we will see in the Word today. And I pray that is what we will see in our world today. And so out of reverence for the Holy Word of God, uh, if you would stand together, if you're able, as I read our passage today for us. 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 1 through 23. In the midst of this hopeless situation, all hope has not been lost. Notice what we see here. One day... Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahatab, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. Uh, the name of one was Bozes and the name of the other was Senech. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be 
that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go. For the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length and an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp and the field and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked and it became a very great panic. And the watchman of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked. And behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who is gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Abijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also to be, excuse me, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. If you would pray with me. Father, as we read about a battle and a victory as we consider the faith of two men, of Jonathan and his armor bearer, help us to see how this is applicable to our lives today. Help us to see, Lord, the picture we have here of faith. And Lord, I do pray, as we consider your word today, that you might help us to see what steps of faith you are calling us to make today and in the coming days. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In 1956, five men made history when they appeared in a 10-page article in Life magazine. Nate Saint was 32 years old. He was an expert pilot. 
having served in the Air Force in World War II. Ed McCulley was a football and track star and the president of his senior class in college. He was headed towards a career in law. Pete Fleming was 27 years old. He was an honor student and a linguist. Uh, Roger Yowderman was 32 years old, an athlete and also a veteran of World War II, where he served as an Army paratrooper. And Jim Elliott was 28 years old. He was a champion wrestler, debater, and an honors graduate. These five men did not become famous for any of those accomplishments. They became famous because they were persuaded by the gospel. They were convinced by God's call on their lives to take the gospel to the most unreached people on the planet. And that led them to a section in Ecuador where there was a Warani tribe that had never been exposed to most of civilization and had never heard the gospel. And as these five men put everything else on hold and moved their families to the jungle and started this process of trying to reach this tribe with the gospel, their intentions were grossly misunderstood. And they were killed by Warani warriors on January 8th, 1956. Over the last 65 years, a number of articles have been written, interviews have been conducted about what took place that day and the days leading up to it. One that has struck me time and time again as I've read it is one that was given an interview with Nate Saint's widow. She shared that her husband and the other men had carried with them guns for protection on their missionary journey. That when these warriors came at them with spears, really the warriors were outmatched because Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and these other men had weapons and could defend themselves. But they had told their wives before they went into that jungle that they would never use their weapons on the men they were trying to reach with the gospel. And their reason was simply this. The Warani did not know Jesus. And if they were to lose their lives, they were headed for a Christless eternity. Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, and others, they knew Christ. And they knew that if their lives were lost, that they would be in glory with Christ. And so that's what compelled them when these men were running at them with spears, not to defend themselves and ultimately to give their lives. There are many, I'm sure, that read about their story in Life magazine and still read their story today and think, what a loss. What a shame. Why not defend yourself? What could have come if these men who were so courageous had gone on to, to live and have missions, careers? How much was lost on that day? They don't understand why these men wouldn't defend themselves. But we find the answer to that question as we look through their journals, particularly through Jim Elliott's journal. He wrote this on October 28, 1949, just a few years before that day he lost his life. It's a statement that lives on with us today. He is no fool that gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool that gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I find that quote particularly interesting as we 
continuing our study through 1 Samuel because there is a fool in this passage. There is a fool that we read about last week. Saul's ways at this point are considered by the scripture, by God, to be foolish. But not everyone in 1 Samuel 14 is foolish. We see one here, actually two, that are rather courageous who long before Jim Elliot wrote these words in his journal, seemed to be living by a a similar mantra. That they're willing to risk everything for the glory of God. And we find that here as Jonathan and his armor bearer are willing to take on the Philistine army. Now, as we've seen before in our study of 1 Samuel... Uh, 1 Samuel, in many ways, is a book of contrast. And we see a very clear contrast in this chapter uh, between Saul, the, the rejected king, and his son, who would have been a, a wonderful king, it seems. Uh, a man who had great faith in God and who steps out in that faith in God. A man who understood what it was to be faithful and trusting and who was willing to give what he couldn't keep, to gain what he couldn't lose. And so I want to walk through this passage and consider the contrast we see between these two men and consider what our call from God's Word is today, beginning with that first point there in your outline. And I think the first call is this. Don't just sit there. Do something. Don't just sit there. Do something. And notice the very first contrast we've seen between Jonathan and Saul. It is a picture of sitting and it is a picture of doing. Uh, Here we have Jonathan surveying the situation in the Philistine camp. He takes his armor bearer with him and wants to see what's going on across this valley. He's very familiar with the situation. He knows that they are outmatched and outnumbered. He knows that this army has no weapons to defend themselves. In fact, we read in 1 Samuel 13 that the only ones that had swords or spears were Saul and his son Jonathan. But Jonathan is convinced to put those weapons to use. He is convinced that he's going to step out in faith. And the numbers don't matter to him. He is willing to step out and trust God, whatever the outcome may be. But what a contrast that is with his father, Saul. Saul is literally sitting. Depending on the translation you have, some have him sitting in a cave. Others have him under a tree. But either way, the picture here is clear. He is sitting in fear and in foolishness. While Jonathan is moving forward in faith. We also see a contrast between those who are gathered together with Jonathan and Saul. With Jonathan, we see his armor bearer. A man whose name we will never know this side of eternity. But who will likely be celebrated in glory because of his courageous faith here in this passage. He is willing to go with Jonathan. He is willing to give his life for the glory of God to take on the enemies of God. But notice who Saul has gathered with him. Among these 600 men, there's a priest named Ahijah. Ahijah, we read here, and we're given the detail, that he was the nephew of Ichabod. Ichabod, of course, was the son of Phinehas, Eli's worthless son. And you remember the story of Ichabod's birth. Back in 1 Samuel 4, the Israelites are at war with the Philistines, and they are looking to the ark of God as a, as a superstitious token that might harness the power of God. And they take this ark into battle and everything goes wrong. The Philistines conquer them. Uh, Phineas and his brother, who at this point had been condemned by God and who were wicked and worthless men, they lose their lives. And when the news of this defeat 
and of the ark going into the hand of the Philistines and of his son's death comes to him, Eli literally falls over and dies. And then there's this footnote there in 1 Samuel 4 that, the, that Phineas's widow gives birth to a son and she names her son Ichabod whose name means the glory has departed. Because the glory had left Israel at that point. The ark was gone. The priestly line was in ruins. The glory had departed. And now we fast forward here to 1 Samuel 14, and we find Saul, who's a rejected king. He has lost the favor of God. We find Samuel, who is now God's anointed prophet, has abandoned Saul. So Saul, the rejected king, Saul without the priestly line around him, seems to go find whoever he can find, and he finds this relative of Ichabod, this departed glory priest. And that's who he surrounds himself with. And so here we have this contrast. On one side of the valley, this rejected king, his departed glory priest, and on the other side, Jonathan and his armor bearer who are willing to take on tens of thousands of Philistines as they step out in faith. It's a reminder to us, friends, that our faith is to be an active faith. That our faith is not to be one where we get so scared and we get so foolish that we just sit still and do nothing. Our faith requires action. Our faith should produce works. That's why James says to us that faith without works is dead. Again, that doesn't mean that our works produce our faith, but it means that genuine faith should produce works. There should be evidence in your life and in my life today that we are genuinely saved. Our lives should look different than the people around us who don't know Christ. And that evidence should be a moving, active faith. Because genuine faith produces fruit. I mean, the picture we have here of Saul is that his faith was dead. It was still, it was fearful, and it was foolish. His faith had no action. But Jonathan's faith is active. It was producing Faith, a trust in God, a willingness to risk everything for the glory of God. Which bears the question, in your life today, what fruit is your faith producing? I mean, today, what can you put your finger on? What step of faith can you point to to say, Pastor, this is an area where I see God at work in my life. Here's a step of faith I took this week that apart from the gospel, I would have never done that. Can you put your finger on a step of faith you've taken this week? A step of faith you'll take in the coming weeks? Is your walk of faith, an actual walk of faith, are, are you moving, are you active in it? Or are you just sitting still? Jonathan's actions in this passage are a needed reminder for us today not to just sit there but to do something. Point two, we are to attempt great things for God and to expect, or excuse me, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. That may say, sound familiar to you. It's actually a quote from William Carey. William Carey was one of the first missionaries to India. Uh, many consider him to be the father of modern missions. And he inspired a generation of missionaries with that simple message 
to attempt great things for God and to expect great things from God. This is not a name it and claim it philosophy. This is not saying, well, if you attempt great things, then, then God owes you. Rather, it is to say we are to step out in faith and to attempt great things from God. And we are to do so expectantly because we have a God throughout the Word who does great things in response to the faith of His people. And we certainly see that here with Jonathan and his armor bearer. Notice verse 6 again. Jonathan says to his armor bearer, come let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. He's pointing out very clearly, they're, they're not with us. They're, they're against us. They don't have God's favor. They are our enemies. And so let's go over there. And it may be that the Lord will work for us. Again, there's no guarantee here that there's no health and wealth philosophy. There's no name it and claim it. There's no, well, if we do this, then God's going to guarantee this. Rather, they say, we will go out there, we will take on the enemies of God, and it may be that God will work for us. Why? Because nothing can hinder the Lord for saving by many or by a few. Jonathan is saying very clearly to his armor bearer, God doesn't need us today, but perhaps God will use us. So he steps out with his armor bearer, and he is a part of what we see God doing Time and time and time again. It's what we read from Hebrews just a moment ago. How God is not concerned with numbers. And God is not concerned about being outmatched. That God in His sovereign plan and His providence, He will move as He will move. And as we step out in faith, we can be a part of that movement. And a part of that great victory. It may be, Jonathan says, that the Lord will work for us. And so here we have a picture with Jonathan and his armor bearer. They are attempting great things for God. They are expecting great things from God with no guarantee of victory. And so Jonathan comes up with this plan. They're going to cross over to the Philistines and they're going to make themselves uh, known. And based on how the Philistines respond, this will be an indication to them if God is going to give them victory or not. Now, some may look at this and say, well, it appears Jonathan's kind of laying out a fleece or Jonathan's looking for a sign. But I think there's actually a little strategy involved here. As you consider the camp of the Philistines and how they might be spread out, uh, Jonathan's saying, well, if they come towards us or we go towards them, well, that's going to make a difference here in how this battle plays out. And so he lays out this plan for his armor bearer, and he says to him that, uh, that they are to step out in faith and to trust God. And so as they do this, verse 15 indicates that God very much does move, that there's a divine intervention that takes place here because as Jonathan and his armor bearer come into the camp and they begin to attack the Philistines, the scripture tells us that there was trembling and that the earth quaked and there became this great panic in the camp. And this is all signs of God's hands giving the Israelites victory through these two men. Now, if this was a Hollywood movie at this point, as you see uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer taking on this army and God working and the earth quaking, the camera then would kind of lift up and would pan over to the other side of the valley. <laughs> and there we have this picture of Saul. And Saul's watchmen, they're, they're looking out in the other direction and they're noticing something's going on in the Philistine camp. <laughs> something's happening over there. 
And so Saul immediately understands, well, somebody must have gone out from our camp. Something's going on across the valley. And so he has them number and inquire and find out who it is that has left the camp. And he soon learns that it's Jonathan and his armor bearer. Now think about this for a moment. At this point, we might expect Saul to have some remnants of a loving father and a worried father. He has just learned that the chaos in the camp among the Philistines, who outnumber them by tens of thousands, that it has something to do with his son and his son's armor bearer. You might expect Saul at this point to say, I need to go get my son. You might expect him to take a group of his army or his whole army with him and go over there to the Philistines and try to come up with some peace treaty or some peace arrangement to get the exchange of his son returned back to him safely. But nothing like that takes place. Rather, what we see is that Saul here turns to his glory-departed priest and tells him to go get the Ark of God. Now this scene is very reminiscent of 1 Samuel chapter 4. When God's people were going into battle with the Philistines. And in order to find favor from God, they thought they could harness the power of God. And through some superstitious spirituality, they were going to take the ark in as this token of God's favor. And it seems that Saul is falling into this same trap. That Saul thinks, well, what am I going to do? We'll go get the ark, maybe that will help us. You can almost hear those 600 men saying, let's not do this again. And yet this is the road that Saul seems to be determined to go down along with Ahijah. But verse 19, fortunately, before Ahijah can finish whatever superstitious ritual he's doing to muster up God's blessing, Saul interrupts him. It seems that as he's trying to come up with this religious ritual and this blessing from God, that it's very evident that God's hand's not on Saul and not on Ahijah, but God's blessing is on Jonathan and his armor bearer who are taking on army and doing rather well. And the men are seeing this. There's chaos going on and Saul's observing this. So whether Saul at this point realizes it's a bad idea to take the ark into battle, or whether Saul at this point just gets really impatient, which we've seen him do before, or whether Saul at this point just kind of comes to his senses and realizes, I want to be on the winning side and not over here on the losing side. Well, Saul just stops this whole religious ritual and he gathers his army together And they go over to the other side and join Jonathan and his armor bearer in fighting the Philistines. Friends, as we watch this unfold, what what a reversal of fortunes. That the fearful, outnumbered Israelites are now, it seems, victorious over their enemies who outnumbered them. Because now there is great chaos in the camp. And now the Philistines are actually turning and fighting each other, it seems. Everything has turned upside down. And it seems to have all started when Jonathan and his armor bearer were willing to step out in faith and attempt a great thing for God. I can't help but wonder what great things we need to be attempting today. I think chances are that God is not calling you or I to cross a valley with a sword to take on an army. But he may be calling us to cross the street to talk to our neighbor about the gospel. 
Now, he may be not calling us to, to go and to take the initiative in the way that Jonathan and, and his armor bearer did with this enemy army, but I think God very well may be calling us this Thanksgiving as we gather with however many people we're able to gather with to move the conversation beyond politics and the election and COVID and masks and even things we used to talk about like sports and to move those conversations towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe that's the step of faith that many of us, if we're honest, brings a great deal of fear into our lives. And I believe that's the great thing that God is calling us to do. To talk with that loved one, to talk with that coworker, to talk with that fellow student about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps to talk to a total stranger. We hear, see here that Jonathan's great attempt was to call a nation into battle. And perhaps our great attempt will be to call others to repentance and to faith. So don't just sit there, do something. Attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. And then finally, point three, remember this. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Notice here in verse 20, Saul and his armor are in his army. They join Jonathan and his armor bearer, and God brings great confusion among the Philistines to the extent the Philistines are now fighting themselves. And then there's this note in verse 21. Apparently, we don't know all the details, but there were Hebrews that at some point had defected from the Israelites. Maybe this is where all the blacksmiths went. We don't know. But there were a group of Hebrews who at some point in this conflict with the Philistines over the years or perhaps in recent days had defected and had gone over to the Philistines. And they said, well, it looks like they're going to win. Well, we want to be on the winning side of this. But now this movement of God is so great that they come to their senses and now they pick up arms and they're fighting the Philistines. And not only that, <coughs> we see in verse 22 that there are Israelites who you might remember from our studies before, they've actually gone and hidden anywhere they can find to hide. Well, now they're coming out of hiding and they are fighting as well. But notice the scripture does not say, so the Israelites saved themselves that day. The scripture says very clearly in verse 23, so the Lord saved Israel that day. And friends, that is a much needed reminder for us. As we deal with trials and tribulations, with sufferings and sickness, with battles of our own in these uncertain days, we need to be reminded that the battle belongs to the Lord and that victory is the Lord's. It is the Lord that saved Israel that day. It is the Lord who had saved Israel every day up until that day. It is the Lord that would save his people every day in the future. It is the Lord who does the saving work today. The battle belongs to the Lord. And if we're on the Lord's side, then no one, nothing can stand against us. Romans chapter 8 verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Psalm 118, verse 6, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? So friends, we are reminded here that, that the victory belongs to God. And so how do we reconcile that then with stories like the one we started out with? 
I mean, those five missionaries, what, what victory did they see? They never got the opportunity to lead someone to Christ. They, they never got the opportunity to witness repentance among this savage tribe they were seeking to reach. Where's the victory there? Well, the story, as many of you know, didn't end on that day in 1956. The story continued years after the death of these five men. One of their widows, Elizabeth Elliot, the widow of Jim Elliot, and one of the sisters, Rachel Saint, the sister of Nate Saint, felt moved by God to move to Ecuador and to be missionaries among the tribe that had been responsible for killing their loved ones. They ended up living with the tribe, and they ended up leading the very men who had savagely killed these missionaries. Those same men, they ended up leading to faith in Jesus Christ. Their families eventually reached that entire tribe with the gospel, and then that tribe became missionaries to neighboring tribes, and there was a great movement of God throughout that whole region. But the story didn't end there. About a decade later, uh, two of Nate Saint's children, who were just toddlers when their father was murdered, had grown and come to a point where they had placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And they were baptized in the very river that their father died in by the very men that killed their father. Friends, that is a picture of the movement of the hand of God. But it doesn't end there. Because one day in glory, there will be Warani Indians who will be gathered with the men that they slaughtered in a new heaven and in a new earth joined by countless people who come to faith in Christ through their witness. We don't always see the victory here this side of eternity. But friends, God indeed is bringing the victory. And we need to be mindful of this in these days. When it seems like we are surrounded by defeats. When it seems like we are surrounded by death and suffering. When it seems like cancer has the final word and COVID has the final word and so many other things have the final word. We need to be reminded that victory is still coming. And that there is a day coming for us in a new heaven and a new earth where we will be seated around the throne in glory. And we will join the choir of those who have gone before us in singing praises and glory to Christ our King forever and ever and ever. And in this day, as we await that day, may our hearts be set on it. May our minds think often of it. And may our lips speak of it that a lost and dying world might come to repentance and to faith. He is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. If you would stand and pray with me, please. Father God, we thank you for the victory that is coming, the victory that was accomplished when Christ died in our place, and was resurrected. Lord, I realize that there are many here who've gathered with us this morning, and I consider myself one of them who are weary and are tired, who, who are grieving and who are mourning. 
who are not looking forward to an empty chair at Thanksgiving this year. But I thank you, God, that in your goodness and grace, that there's not an empty chair in heaven. I thank you, Lord, that we hold firmly to our faith and the gospel hope we have, that those who won't be with us this Thanksgiving, whose trust and hope was in the gospel, Lord, they are tasting this victory today. And they are with you today. And where they are, we will one day be. Lord, I pray that that will be a message that will come for us and will compel us to preach and share the gospel with every person we encounter in the coming days. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going to give an opportunity to respond to God's word. And as we sing, just a reminder in these weary days of the God who holds us in this time. As we respond and as we sing, we do invite you to come. I'll be here to pray with you, to counsel with you. It may be that God's leading you on this November day, 2020, to come and to profess your faith in Christ before this fellowship of believers, to start the process of joining in membership with this church family, to take a step of obedience and baptism. And maybe you just need to come and, and need somebody to pray with you, and I would be honored to do that. As we lift our voices and as we sing together, he will hold me fast.